This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Kelly Henderson, and you're listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast. This week on the podcast, my guest is author Mary Laura Philpott. She is an incredible author and has recently written a memoir titled I Miss You When I Blink. I met Mary Laura while we were both being interviewed on another podcast. And while I listened to her talk, I had this overwhelming thought of, man, I just want to be her friend. Her down-to-earth, humor-filled approach to some of life's hardest seasons was so refreshing to me and something that my sometimes overly serious mind really needed that day. I Miss You When I Blink is a book about reinvention. No matter where we are in life, we are all susceptible to reaching those moments where we have all that we could have ever dreamed of and maybe even more, yet we feel incredibly empty inside. Mary Laura says these times are not times to blow up your life. Instead, we talked through ways that she defeated her hardest season of reinvention, what she learned from all of it, and how she continues to reinvent now. Here's our conversation. Okay, so you're an author, so I feel like I need to do a little character development here. Okay. (laughs) Okay, develop the character. Okay, so we're going to start with that. So you know how people say we are human beings, not human doings? Yes. But I was reading your bio and I'm like, holy shit, she's a like big human doing. Like you've done a lot. Well, you've read the book, so you know that's true to character. (laughs) Like I am only, I only have a sense of peace when I'm doing a lot. So I am a like 100% died in the wool workaholic. And, And I will change a lot of things about myself. I have changed a lot of things about myself, but I am self aware enough to know that will never change. I do always just a little too much and that just seems to be where i where i am content where you feel comfortable mm-hmm. well let's talk about some of the things you've accomplished so <laughs> your writing has been featured in the new york times the washington post the los angeles times mcsweeney's the paris review Brilla. The Paris Review. Let me try that again. Oh, the Oprah Magazine. I mean, that one to me, I'm like, that is goals. <laughs> and you've had a ton of other publications too. You're the founding editor of Musing, the online magazine for, is it Parnassus? Is yeah, that we Parnassus say it? Books. Parnassus Books, as well as the Emmy-winning co-host of the liter- literary interview show, A Word on Words, which is on Nashville Public Television. It is. 
And you've done all this while having a family with a husband and kids. And dogs. And dogs. I didn't know about the dogs. (laughs) They're the worst. (laughs) They take up the most time. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And now, so this is what, like we talked about the human doing, but this is what I think is so cool about you. You've now written a book kind of about the human being parts of you. Yeah. And the human undoing. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll get to all of that. It's a book about that. Yeah, I have. So it's called I Miss You When I Blink, which it's amazingly honest. I laughed out loud multiple times, by the way. You should know that. Good. It's a um, a group of essays about your life, your struggles, but also your resolve and the solutions you've kind of come to through the years Mm -hmm. and what you've learned from all these imperfect experiences. That's a good summary. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for the elevator pitch. (laughs) I'll I'll send you that later so you can use it. But so what made you decide to get here and do this? To write this book? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that when I talk about kind of what I, where this book fits in the literary world and where this book fits in people's lives, why I have it in my hands and why I'm going around talking about it now is different from why I started writing it. I started writing it purely to see if I could, if I could write enough essays that stuck together and made a pile that could be bound into a book. Essays are what I write. They're what I've, I've always written. And I usually publish them one at a time in newspapers and magazines, that kind of thing. And a few years ago, I thought, you know, I wonder if, if I could get like 20 or 30 of these things, because they're short. I could, I could publish that as a book. At the time, did not know what they would be about, because I never know what I'm writing until I've written it. I sit down thinking I'm writing about one thing, and then five hours later, I've written something completely different. Um, so it wasn't until I was well into writing the stack of essays that became this book that I saw what I was doing and what I was doing was telling stories that in the beginning I thought were just unrelated personal stories from my life, funny stories, sad stories. But what I was doing was going back and revisiting the question and the issue of reinvention again and again, and how I became kind of the perfectionist person that I turned into and then what that did to my life and how I was able to change my life. But I could see these patterns repeating as I wrote about different times in my life. So now when I go out and I, and I talk about this book, I'm talking about it because I'm happy to have produced a narrative about reinvention that is different from the blow your life all the way up kind but I didn't know that's what I was doing when I started. Even the way you're saying that, the reinvention, that sounds a lot better than a midlife crisis. I hate the term midlife crisis. First of all, I hate the term midlife. Same. It's just (laughs) frumpy, it's old, it's eh. Plus, Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody knows how long they're gonna live, so it's an inaccurate term probably for most of us. That is a great point you make. I could get hit by a bus on my way out of here, and then guess what? Midlife was my early 20s. full life. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that's a problem. Um, But I also... I fully believe, and I I know everyone is different, and and there probably are some people who live 40 fabulous years and then have a giant hiccup and then move on with 40 more fabulous years, and I guess that's a midlife crisis. But for me and for so many of my friends, there have been these decision points or breaking points that have happened at all different ages, really kind of starting when we got to adulthood, like we got out of school and we entered this, now we are independent adults phase. And roughly every five years or so, we seem to run into some kind of decision tree where we have to figure out what we're going to be next. So I feel like reinvention happens more commonly on a recurring scale than on the kind of stereotypical 
blow up your life when you're 40 kind of thing. Right. And you actually say there are other solutions than blowing up your life, which we yeah. can get to, too. Yeah. I love what Elizabeth Gilbert, who I'm a huge fan of. Um, She's great. What she wrote about the book. She said, Mary Laura Philpot is a writer, artist, and creator of a singular spark and delight. I adore her and I love her work. Thank God she has finally written a memoir by offering these dispatches from her own life experience. She leaves us thinking about ourselves, where we've been, where we are going, and who we really want to be. I love her. Oh my gosh, right? And I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, but I would just like to say that as we are speaking right now and recording this episode, it is Liz's 50th birthday. Today? So happy birthday, Liz. Oh my gosh. <laughs> happy birthday, Liz. I don't know you, but I love you. <laughs> there you go. Huge fan. Um, so I kind of want to break this down. I want to talk about, let's talk about where we've been. Because yeah. In the book, you talk a lot about what you mentioned, your perfectionism and your OCD. I love the chapter about the perfect murder weapon. (laughs) (laughs) So when I I started writing these essays, I told myself, I'm not going to write too much about childhood because who cares about, you know, who wants to read about some kid in the 80s? Right. Um, But there is a small section at the beginning where I do write about childhood and I kind of couldn't resist. There were things I couldn't write about in adulthood without kind of tracing backwards and going, wait, when did that start? And I can see, starting in childhood, this um, desire I have to get everything right. Yeah. And, you know, we can talk about that later if you want, but a lot of that came from sort of my academic childhood and my parents, and or it didn't, it might just be in my DNA. But what that grew into as an adult was not only kind of a serious desire to live my life right, but also a really silly and ridiculous compulsion to get the right answer, even on things that are none of my business. Like, like I, murder weapons? Yeah, like I can't watch a crime show. I, can't, I never could watch CSI because I would watch the show and the whole time I would be like sweating and stressing <laughs> out like, oh, that's not the place to hide that knife. They're going to find it. And then the show would end and, I, you know, they always catch the perp at the end. And I would lie awake in bed going, yeah, oh, he could have gotten away with it if he had just taken the knife and thrown it in the ocean. Or, you know, I, not, not to give spoilers away, but mm-hmm. I do decide in the course of this essay that the perfect murder weapon is an icicle <laughs> because Died. it melts. Right. There would be no CSI. There would be no law and order. Every murder would be doable and you could get away with it if everybody just stabbed people with icicles. With a really sharp icicle. Yeah. And then it melts. There's no <laughs> fingerprints. Like, this is what my brain does. It wants to solve even, like, questions like, what is the Because you have weapon? to get it right. I got to get it right. I need order. I need the right answer all the time. Yeah. And then there's a story about um, how that's kind of affected your relationships. Even with friends. You were mm-hmm. talking about the dinner, and you were like, okay, texting your friend, we've got to be on time. We've, you yeah. Know, and she wasn't. Yeah. It's... I like timeliness is definitely part of the wanting things to always be right and right. wanting, you know, we're going to meet our goal. 12 of us are going to go out for somebody's 35th birthday and we're and our reservation is at seven. And, you know, I tell the story about my friend coming to pick me up and she picked me up at like seven Oh five. So we were already late. <laughs> and this was when I lived in Atlanta when it, you know, it takes an hour to get anywhere. It's like living in LA. And, um, and I was so anxious and my anxiety about being late came from a good place. It came from a place of, I want us to have this wonderful dinner and I want it to start on time. And I want to respect the restaurant that is holding our table. And I want to respect the birthday girl who is waiting, but it came across as my just being an asshole yeah. and, <laughs> and nagging my friend and being like, Oh, you need to hurry to do right. this red light. And, and what I did instead of, you know, instead of making a great evening, which is what I wanted, 
I just made her mad at me and made everyone else mad at me. And I can, I can look back at so many times and go, Oh gosh, I had such good intentions, but I really came across as extremely annoying in trying to get everything perfect. Right. I mean, I, I don't identify with the time thing as much, but I 100% that perfectionism and it's, it's like this anxiety that you cannot shut off. Yeah. No matter what. And people, like people who are not that way. And I, I probably have more friends who do have a touch of, of anxiety and a touch of wanting to be right than who don't. But I do have some who are just the most laid back people in the world and they're lovely to be friends with. But they've said to me over, over the years, you know, can't you just let it go? Like, let, Relax. Let stuff go. And I think part of what I was doing in writing this book that I didn't realize I was doing until I was finished was trying to write the answer to that question. Why can't you let it go? Hmm. I, I can't let things go because if you trace this all the way back to where it came from, there is a hardwired part of me that started super early that believes I have to do things right and be successful in order to earn love and in order to earn the oxygen I breathe to prove my right to exist. I need to be right all the time. See, that's where I actually think childhood is super interesting. You said, mm-hmm. oh, nobody would want to hear about that. But that's, isn't it fascinating? Mm-hmm. When you trace back to all your steps or your experiences, it really does shape the person you are. Yeah. But I do love what you say when you're like, or I would have been that way anyway. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Because we both, we all are, if you have a sibling, you can look at the two people. Oh, yeah. Raised in the same house. Totally different responses, though. Utterly different people. Yeah, I have a brother who's a couple years younger than I am. And you can tell that we're related. We both have like a really weird sense of humor. And there's threads about us that are similar. But he, he doesn't have this um, the super type A anxiety. And he grew up right there next to me in the same house. So, you know, when I try to figure out where did this come from, I can... I could do the thing that everybody always does in their memoirs and the people always do on talk shows and go, well, you see, it came from my mother. Of course. Um, and I, and I have an essay in the book called wonder woman, which is named for my wonder woman backpack. Um, where I say, okay, let's try it. Let's go back to the earliest memory I have of being this gotta get it right kid. And I can trace it back to this spelling bee and my mom wanting me to win and my seeing my mother's face when I won the spelling bee and she was smiling and I got this, extra love and approval that no one else got. And that, that must be where it came from. That's where I learned that I have to get things right to be loved. So therefore everything I hate about myself is my mother's fault. And then I start the essay over. I tell it again. I tell the same story and I say, or mm-hmm. everything I love about myself is to my mother's credit. My mother is the one who believed in me. My mother is the one who saw what I thought were the natural limits of my mind and and knew I could do more and pushed me harder. And without her confidence in me and without her encouragement and her being my cheerleader, I wouldn't have accomplished all that I've accomplished. I wouldn't have done as well as I did in school and in college and earned the kinds of jobs and things that I have in life. So actually it's all to my mother's credit. And really both of those things are kind of true and neither of those things is really true. I love that, that both the two things could be true at the same time, though. Yeah. Like, it is your experiences. It's also the way you're wired. And you can't really put the blame on any one person. Right. And you can look at it either negatively or right. positively. Right. You say now that you are a parent, you would never blame a parent for anything. I mean, really, like, abject abuse, yes. But 
it's so hard and there's no way to do it right. And it's because it's so hard. You're, you're just guessing all the time, or I, maybe other people aren't. I feel like I'm guessing all the time. I'm going to hope, <laughs> I am, yeah, like, I hope I'm doing life right. Um, and you just don't know the, the effects of what you do as a parent don't show up for so long. So I can see now my, I have two children and they are now teenagers. So I had them very young and, um, I can see now sort of blossoms of seeds that I planted when they were little, but I couldn't have told you then, oh, I, I'm doing this and this is going to turn out this way. So the whole, like everything that's wrong with me is my parents' fault. I, I don't want to, I don't want that to be the way we all live our lives. It's not fair. Cause I don't want it to come back to me. Either. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and also it's so funny. I was laughing so hard at the part where you were like, you know, you're, you're resolved to the situation with your mother who was, a little bit hardcore maybe you say when your kids get home from school you say how was lunch first yeah. before yeah. like what did you accomplish today right. kind of thing I don't say what did you make on your math test exactly and I started this when they were teeny little like when they were in preschool I decided that the first question I would ask every day was um, what did you have for lunch and I don't know why that's what I landed on like it must have just been the thing I said that day and I was like great I'm gonna go with that <laughs> so instead and I still do it now they're in high school and instead of saying you know, how'd you do on that English project? I say, what did you have for lunch? And they're probably going to, you know, in 20 years, write a memoir that's like, I have issues with food. And it's a real obsession with lunch. Right. (laughs) And it's all my mother's fault because every day she made me feel like it really mattered what I ate. Specifically for lunch. You just can't win. Right. At that one meal. Right. It's all about lunch. In therapy, all they do is talk about lunch. (laughs) But here's what's so interesting about you in general in this book to me was you do have this background, this, and you talk about openly your perfectionism and your OCD, and it got you to accomplish a lot, like we talked about. Yeah. And then you had this amazing life, and you have, you have the business stuff, you have the husband, you have the kids, you have the dogs that I just learned about. <laughs> um, so you have all those things, and then you wake up, and you're like, not satisfied yeah. after you thought you should be satisfied. What yeah. was that like? What part of that? That was, there was being the kind of person that I am and that a lot of people I know are where you like to live life according to having goals and meeting yeah. your goals and going, okay, these are the things I am going to do with my life. I began adulthood, not with a literal checklist. Like I didn't actually have a list of like, get a dog, find a guy, get married. You know, it wasn't like that, but I did in the back of my mind have, subconscious thoughts. Yeah, have yeah. certain, like, this is what adults do. They, they buy a home that is made of bricks because that's what the three little pigs taught us. Right. And you, and you marry somebody and you have children and you pursue your career and you do balance because that's what we do now. We have it all. <laughs> and I, and I did these things really almost almost like on momentum. Like there was a, there's a period of like 15 years of my adulthood that was just like a runaway train, a good runaway train. Like I found the guy, we had the one baby, we had the next baby, we bought the house, we bought the next house. We, you know, I moved from doing um, full-time work in the corporate world to freelance writing. This is all going great. I was checking all the boxes. And because the equation that had always worked for me growing up was, if you succeed, you will be loved and feel happy. I, I was, I kept going with that. Like I've got to succeed. I got to do all these things and that's how I'm going to feel loved and feel happy. And it was jarring to me and really kind of catastrophic when I got, and I think this happens to people at different times, but for me, it really kind of hit mid thirties where I looked up and went, 
I actually am not so happy in the daily existence I'm living. Like if you actually look at my waking hours and how I'm spending my time, I dislike more than I like about my life, which is unsettling because this life is exactly as I designed Mm -hmm. it. And if you're the kind of person who likes to get things right and who feels like I gotta, I gotta make it work, um, to say, I made all these decisions and they were the right decisions, but now I feel all wrong. That's just, it's mind blowing. It's catastrophic. If you know anything about me, you know, I am a massive creature of comfort. It is one of my top priorities in life to make my surroundings comfortable at all times. So when I found cozy earth, I quickly scooped up all of the luxurious bedding and loungewear that I could. It felt very on brand for me, but then I went on a trip with a girlfriend not too long ago where she could not stop commenting on how cute and comfy my pajamas were, which then made me realize they may also be my new favorite travel companion as well. Guys, I am not kidding when I say you will experience unmatched softness and smoothness with all of Cozy Earth's products. The temperature regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew add comfort and a touch of style to any travel ensemble, and their bedding comes in the most adorable totes, making it a super easy gift to give anyone. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code Velvet's Edge at the checkout for an exclusive 35% off and let them know we sent you when you're at the checkout. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure... It kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Well, so what did you do? Because this is what I did like, mm -hmm. is that you call this a, a would you, what did you call it, an identity crisis in some way? Yeah. Um, but you say, you know, you think these happen maybe multiple times throughout people's mm -hmm. lives, and you don't have to go blow up your life. Yeah. Well, so there was a book that I read around this time in my life that was life-changing for me. And it's it's actually a business book. This is dorky, but I'm, I'm married to this wonderful uh the very smart business person. And so he's got all these shelves of business books. And I pulled this off his shelf one day. It's called Decisive. Okay. And it's by these uh, this pair of nerds, these brothers, Chip Heath and Dan Heath. And it's about business and how it, when, you, um, when you have a tough business decision to make, the human brain loves a dichotomy. So the human brain loves to go, well, it's either choice A or choice B. Right. Like, let's say you have a difficult employee. Either I got to fire him or he's got to be better at what he does. Like these are the only options. Um, when in fact, in most situations, if you're creative about it, there's an option C and an option D. And uh, you know what? Maybe you take that guy. Maybe he's in the wrong role at the company, and maybe we need to put him here. And um, I read that book, hmm. and it was part of a process of my realizing maybe there are ways I can change my life that would make it a happier life. And maybe it's not just these two these two options that immediately pop to mind, which are either, you know, dig my heels in and smile and be happy and make it work because I made these decisions and now I'm stuck with them. And if I'm a successful person, I've got to succeed at everything I've chosen. Or option B, you know, pulling under the Tuscan sun and run away from my life and right. go to Italy or, you know, put on a backpack and change my name and hike a trail in South America or something. There are a lot of <laughs> narratives like that out there, the whole blow up your life thing. Um, they always work out in the movies though. Oh, they work out <laughs> and they're fabulous. And, I, and to be honest, I love all those stories. And I actually sure. read, I think I read every single one during this time of my life because I was kind of trying to mentally try on different solutions. Like, You're trying to do identity crisis right. Let's be yeah, real here. Exactly. I was like, now I've got to do my research on how to have a breakdown. <laughs> Should I have a breakdown like Cheryl Strait in Wild? Exactly. Or should I have a breakdown like... Elizabeth Gilbert right. in Eat, Pray, Love. Exactly. Like, <laughs> whose breakdown should I model my breakdown after? Um, which, first of all, is why I love books and why I love memoirs. Telling our stories and putting them out there so that we can, you know, have them as models that one another can follow is wonderful. But what I ended up finding was there were changes I could make that changed my life to some degree, but that didn't completely blow it up. There were things I wanted to keep. I wanted to keep my family. I, I played with the idea. I shouldn't say played with. That sounds so casual. But I thought about, you know, if I'm miserable, is it partly my husband's fault? Like, sure. should, should I ditch I this whole marriage? I think that's the quickest marriage? response for most people, right? right? You go to what's closest to you and think, well, if I'm doing that and I'm miserable, it must be their fault. It, right. I, you know, if that's the person who's been here all along, right. somehow they must be responsible for why I feel terrible. Um, there's a common narrative out there that motherhood kind of ruins lives and that if you're a creative person, but you've had children, they must be dragging you down. And that's the reason you haven't realized all your dreams. And so I kind of, you know, thought about that. That is not true for me. Um, so I, I found things I could change, like number one, where I lived at the time I was living in Atlanta, which is a wonderful city. It may be the right city for many, many listeners. It was not <laughs> the right place for me mm -hmm. anymore. I did not have around me the kind of creative community that I have learned 
I really need to feel not lonely Mm -hmm. and to feel like I'm part of something bigger. I did not love the way I was spending a lot of my time, which was in traffic because the traffic is miserable there. Um, There was a lot about it that wasn't working for me and I felt stuck because there was also a lot about it that did work. I had a ton of friends in Atlanta, really good friends I'd had for a long time. And for a while I was wrestling with the idea of I don't belong here and I know I don't belong here and I know I need to get out, but I love these people. Mm-hmm. How, oh no, what, you know, I'm either going to have to stay with the people I love or I have to like run away from them. And there are all these in between. There's all these options C, D, E, where you can say to somebody, I love you and you are my best friends and I want to see you all the time, but I can't live here every day. Yeah. This isn't working for me anymore. So that's, I'm, I'm summarizing a lot and it's all in the book, but there there were ch- distinct changes I could make, incremental changes that enabled me to feel like I was starting my life over in some ways while keeping a lot of what was really important to and me. The foundational stuff, it sounds yeah. like. I think as, I, as I've gotten older, I used to think of life, kind of what you're saying, the A, B is like it's very black and white. Like there is this option and that option. And I've really started to lean into life really happens in that gray area. Oh, so much. You know, and you're right in every single situation I'm faced with these days, I, my reaction is always, well, guess that's over or, you know, like it's just, (laughs) Oh God, I need to quit my job and I'm just unhappy and it's so extreme. Yeah. But if I sit with it for a couple of days or a week or a month or sometimes it takes longer (laughs) or five years or or whatever, whatever that looks like, (laughs) um, you get to the place where you're like, Oh, I don't have to blow it up as you said. And I can still do this part. I don't like that part. Mm -hmm. And you find yourself again. Yeah. What I loved is what you talk, you talk about, like it is about finding yourself, but it's also about finding what you're not. Yes. Which is so important. I think giving yourself permission to quit. Yeah. Which if you, it's so hard, it's so hard. And if you're a driven person and you're a person who kind of identifies with success, it's hard to let yourself quit because you feel like, well, you know, if you know somebody, you don't just give up. I've never quit. Anything I don't want to be a quitter. Life, yeah. It's hard. I used ever. to be, I used to be the kind of person who would not put down a book. Yeah. I could get 200 pages into a book and be thinking, I hate this. This is horrible. And I would make myself read to the end. I don't do that anymore. Wow. Um, but this, there's a story I tell in the book as an example of getting to a place in my life where I would let myself quit things. And it is, um, the year that I had a, a gig as part of the fashion police mm-hmm. at Us Weekly, <laughs> which at, on the surface seems like the best thing in the world to best me. Best job ever. Right. I love making people laugh. It's right? all jokes. It's, you know, this magazine is everywhere. It's like next to every pedicure chair in the country. And I was like, this is perfect for me. I love to talk about fashion and yet I am no good at it. So it's, it's like fun and funny to me. <laughs> um, but what I found after doing this job for about a year was... I hated it. No offense to Us Weekly. They were lovely to work with. The people there are great. Um, But the task of looking at photographs of people who were just trying to do their job Mm -hmm. or make their art Mm -hmm. or go to the fucking gym, you know, and someone's taking their picture and then being asked to crack jokes about what they have on or what they look like felt horrible to me. I I couldn't do it. I was like, this is, this is, I'm making myself sick. First of all, the jokes that they, the way it would work is you would submit like 10 jokes per picture and then they would pick one to run in the magazine. And the one they picked was always the worst one. So there was that, but also 
it just, it didn't feel, it wasn't sitting right with me. But at the same time, I have this part of my brain that's like, well, you can't just quit. And the exposure. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's cool. Weekly. It's cool to be part of the fashion, but you can't totally. give up. And I did finally let myself give up and it felt so good to write Were you say, so relieved? Thank you for having me. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. It, yeah. I can't do it anymore. The, fi- the one that broke me was um, this precious picture of Kelly Clarkson. And she had on Who's a, the nicest person who ever. Was lovely. Um, <laughs> she had on a t-shirt and this really cute skirt with records all over it. Yeah. And we were supposed to make fun of it. And I, first of all, I thought she looked adorable. So I would have worn it if I knew how to tuck a shirt into right. a skirt, which I can't. Um, but also, you know, I've, I've watched her career since she was on American Idol. Like I've watched her on TV grow up and she works so hard. And like you said, she's such a nice person. I'm not going to make fun of her. I can't, I just can't do it. So did you do it? No. What'd you say? That's what, that's <laughs> when I was really like, curious. I quit. I'm going to Google this. That's oh, why I was like, I quit. I can't do it anymore. This is not me. Yeah. Uh, you said at some point, I can't remember where I read this, but it's okay to give yourself the permission to change. Yeah. Ugh. I need what, that. Deciding what you, and I really kind of had to game the system in my mind because my mind wants to do the most successful right choice all the time. Yes. Which means on the surface, quitting doesn't work within that system, but you can game the system and say to yourself, it's actually an even greater kind of success to identify what needs to be removed from your life so that you can focus on the right things. So if you can choose the right things to quit, you're actually succeeding at focusing your life. Which does help my mind. See? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. How you look at it's it. It's all about how you do it. I, we talked earlier about when you first got here, it's something about the age 37. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> so I just turned 37 if you can't figure it out, but yeah, I've literally been going through what you wrote about in this book and what we're talking about right now going, mm-hmm. what do I really want to do with my life? Mm-hmm. Something is not sitting right. I feel like yep. I've lost myself because mm-hmm. I'm doing all the time. Yeah. And you're exhausted. Everyone I know is exhausted. Exhausted. There's some, there's some key ages that I have figured out in my extremely unscientific research of going on book tour um one and I don't know if it's this is this way for guys but I know for women because so many have come through my signing line and said this turning 30 yeah really knocks people off their feet 30 was a terrible year for me yeah there's so many that's a thing yeah so many people came have come through my signing line at events with like tears running down their face and said I just I'm about to turn 30. Oh my God. And I really needed this. And I, I don't know if it's because 30 somehow signals like you're officially an adult. Right. You cannot get by calling yourself right. a kid anymore. Therefore the stakes feel higher in every choice you make. Therefore there's more pressure to choose the exactly right thing every time you have a choice. Um, but then also 37 ish, 36, maybe 38. There's something about that mid to late 30 time that phase where and again maybe this is true for guys as well but I hear it more from women and for me you know obviously I am a woman but um something hits right about there and I think maybe that's when the momentum wears off a little bit like the momentum that carried you through your 20s and over the hump of your 30th birthday and through a lot of decisions whether they are professional decisions or creative decisions or personal life decisions or you know if you're somebody like you and like me our professional and creative and personal Mm. lives are all blended together exactly Um, so we're carrying a lot at one time 
something about getting to kind of mid to late thirties, the weight of all that just hits you and you look at what's ahead of you and the, and you have enough life left ahead of you that you want to be happy with it, but you're carrying all this stuff around and you're not sure you're happy. There's something about that 37 ish age. Totally. And I think that you look at the stuff around you because at 37, I have way more than I've ever had, Mm -hmm. you know, like of things, of Mm -hmm. opportunities, Mm -hmm. of just all of it. Yeah. And from the outside, I go, oh my God, if my, even my 30 year old self would have dreamed of this stuff, I would have been like, oh my God, that's where I'm going. Yeah. So you feel like you should be the happiest you've ever been. Yeah. On paper, it looks awesome. Exactly. And And then, and then you start having the self doubt of like, am I ungrateful? Oh, I tell myself that every day. Be grateful for the the things you have. And I do think that's a thing. Like you need, you know, of course I'd love gratitude list and all of that. That definitely helps. But on the flip side, there's this other new pressure now of, oh my God, I'm 37. Mm -hmm. I do have a lot of accomplishments yet. I thought I would have more or I thought my life would look like X, Y, and Z. And it looks like this. Right. So you just start beating yourself up for that. Right. And then you beat yourself up for beating yourself up because you're being ungrateful. (laughs) There's a chapter in this book called Ungrateful Bitch where I imagine, I I always feel like people think, no one's thinking about me, first of all, but like I'm always imagining that people are thinking I'm ungrateful. When I I admit that I am not happy with something or I want to make a change, I'm like, oh, everyone thinks I'm an ungrateful bitch. Trust me, I've literally already thought, should I edit this out of the podcast? <laughs> and and I have this little exercise that I recommend in the book where I'm like, so here's the deal: either you are an ungrateful bitch mm-hmm. or you're not. Mm-hmm. Who cares? I mean, your feelings are your feelings, no matter what. And if you're unsatisfied, you're unsatisfied. Yeah. And if you are satisfied, you're satisfied. Try to show gratitude as often as you can, but quit worrying about whether you're an ungrateful bitch. Just say those words until they have no no meaning anymore. Like stand in front of the mirror and go, "Hello, I'm an ungrateful bitch." <laughs> Like when you go to Starbucks and they go, what name should we put on your cup? Say, that's Ungrateful Bitch <laughs> with a capital that? U and a capital. Just say it until it has no meaning anymore and it's not poisonous and it can't hurt you. Ungrateful Bitch. Ungrateful Coffee's bitch. ready. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> I've got a triple latte for Ungrateful Bitch. So taking the power away, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. I mean, I still care a lot, but I'm going to work on that. <laughs> Okay, so now we get to the last thing Elizabeth Gilbert said, basically, which is who you really want to be, yeah. which can you talk through? I feel like, like you know, your book is about the 37-year-old you, and now mm-hmm. you're at a different place, and I yeah. see this whole confidence and also just peace in who mm-hmm. you are. Like, what? how did you get there? I love that you look at me and see confidence and peace. I love that I do, too. <laughs> because I don't feel that all the time. Well, you um, look that way from the outside. Well, you know, I worked hard on my hair today. Um, <laughs> Which looks great, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Mental and emotional peace is so elusive and so hard to pin down and so hard to reach. And I, I use that phrase a lot because I want to be clear that when I talk about, um, when I'm talking with people, not only about my life and what I write in my book, but just with people I'm having conversations with, and we're discussing being unsatisfied or wanting something different. 99% of the time, we don't mean wanting different things. We don't mean wanting more things. This is not about, I'm not grateful for what I have. This is about no matter what I have, whether it's enough or not enough, if you don't have mental and emotional peace, 
you will always be unsettled. Mm. And for a long, 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 long time, I thought if I can just be successful enough at everything, at writing, at business, at friendship, at being a you know, female role model, whatever, being a mom, if I can be successful at every single thing, then I'll get mental and emotional yeah, peace. But, you know, I remember, remember last year when um, Kate Spade and Anthony mm-hmm. Bourdain died one right after the other, mm-hmm. both by suicide. And I remember thinking, are we ever going to learn as human beings that you, there is no level of success that guarantees mental and emotional peace. So, when I think about who I want to be, A, I would like to be someone who at least has some kind of a grip on mental and emotional peace. But I also want to be somebody who is a meaningful part of other people's lives. Because connection. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, want, I want not to be lonely. Like, when I look at every time in my life that I have been really unsatisfied or really miserable, what went along with it was loneliness. Hmm. And part of loneliness is thinking that you're the only person who has the problems you have. So this is part of what keeps me writing and what keeps me, you know, what made me write, keep going writing this book and, and hopefully will get me to write another one one day is feeling like if we share our stories with each other and we talk about the things that are kind of awkward and weird and uncomfortable, we can at least alleviate loneliness from everybody's plate. Because you're, because you're connecting and you come out of isolation. Yeah. And loneliness compounds every problem. Anything oh, you're going totally. through, no matter how bad it is, is 10 times worse if you think you're the only person going mm-hmm. through it. So if, when I think about who I want to be, I would, I would like to, as much as I can, be someone who connects with other people and helps alleviate loneliness in other people. I don't know who I want to be. I mean, who knows who I'll be in 10 or 20 years. I will say one of the funniest things that has happened as I've been out touring and talking about this book, people come through the line. There are the crying 30-year-olds. There are the 37-year-olds who are like, yeah, right there. And then there are the women in their 60s and 70s. Yeah. They're hysterical. They lean in with this like conspiratorial look on their face and they're like, guess what? It never gets better. Oh, great. <laughs> but, which they think is so funny. So many have said that. But I think what they mean is you do get to keep reinventing so don't fall into the trap of going, oh, yay, I figured out that reinvention happens yeah. and now I've done it and I'm done. And At here I am, 40 world, whatever. Right. figured it out. You, if you're going to accept that reinvention can happen you know, in a recurrent kind of way, you also need to accept it's going to keep happening. So in 10 years, I don't know where I'll be. I don't know what I'll be doing. I think what I have learned is that it should be something different from where I am and what I'm doing now because change has been good for me. Growth. That's yeah. growth to growth. me. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny that we actually think we're going to figure out who we should be, what job we should do for the rest of our lives when like life doesn't happen that way. It does not. And the, and even if it, even if you do think you have it figured out, the goalpost is always moving. Yeah. You know, you can get to this thing and go, got it. And look up and go, Oh wait, whoops. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I thought I wanted. It's not, it's not working. Um, do you feel like you belong now? Yes and no. I feel like there's a lot of, I have um, in some ways more community in my life and more connection than I did say 10 years ago. 
I love being in Nashville. That's been a really great place for me for the last few years. I was born here, but I did not grow up here. Um, and the book kind of tells the story of how I left Atlanta after 17 years and came here with my family. I love, um, where Nashville is right now as mm-hmm. a creative community. That's been wonderful for me. I don't think I could have written this book living in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It was good for me to be surrounded by other people who write and other people who, you know, sing or act or do creative things in a legitimate way. That was helpful for me. So I do feel like I I belong more in that way. I, I think there's a part of me and probably a part of everybody that always feels a little disconnected I still am always like, do I belong? Am I in the right place? Mm-hmm. Am I doing the right thing? Or maybe that's just me. I don't know. I don't think so. I think we're always, or I, for me, I think I'm always wanting more connection. And then you get to the places, I don't know if you have this feeling where I, I think, do I belong or do I deserve to be here? Yes. And that's always the big question for me. So I'm kind of seeking the belonging through mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What happens at 40? Are you going to write us another book? I loved 40. <laughs> really? 40 was great. The 40th birthday is like everything that the 30th birthday is not. 30th birthday is all like, oh no, I'm an adult. What have yeah. I done? Oh, what am I going to do next? And there's something really lovely about 40. And I was telling you earlier before, before we started recording, I think there's something about our generation. And mm-hmm. I'm a little bit older than you are, but I'm, I'm lumping our generation as kind of a big, a big group. But I think in some ways we're reacting against what the view was in like the 80s and early 90s of 100%. 40 as being like over the hill. And it's kind of silly. Yeah. But now I think we all look at 40, not we all, but a lot of people look at 40 as a chance to start a new phase, mm-hmm. which is fun and refreshing. And you've gotten a lot of the bullshit out of your life. By that point, you've lived through 37, first of all. <laughs> right. You survived um, 37. Right. Um, I loved 40. 40s have been fun. I like them. It sounds like, from what I've heard from friends, it's a little more of the, who cares? Like you said. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't have as many cares to give. Right. And you're, I mean, honestly, a little tired. Yeah. So I do, I'm going to conserve the energy I have, and I'm not going to spend it on stupid stuff I don't want to do. Right. Mary Laura, where can people find you? Uh, in my house, you can find me <laughs> no, where can by people myself. Find you that you, you want can find to. me on Instagram. That's probably uh-huh. my favorite. Okay, and Twitter. What's your handle? I love Twitter. Um, on Instagram, it's my whole name, Mary Laura Philpot. Twitter does not give you that many letters in yes. a handle, so on Twitter, it's it's Mary Laura F. And a, <laughs> like and a, ph yeah ph oh, it wow. cuts off but you know search mary laura philpot on either one okay. you will find me i do have an, an author page on facebook as well but i have i don't use facebook quite as much yeah and the book is called i miss you when i blink which i love the title too Thanks. something your son said yeah. right you yeah. can read about that all in the book it's amazing it makes you laugh out loud there's a couple moments where i actually cried as well like teared up you know oh, the choke-ups yeah. Probably because probably because I'm 37 and related. <laughs> but even if you're not 37, it's a really, really great read. And I love that it's just take, letting us all off the hook a little bit. Yeah. The humanity of us yeah. all. We got to let each other off the hook. Because it's hard to let yourself off the hook. So yeah. we need to look at each other and go, no, you're, you're good. You're, you're off okay. the hook. Grace. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you guys for listening. Check out Mary Laura on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and read the book. I miss you when I blink. Bye. 
This is Kelly Henderson, and you've been listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast. I truly believe that every one of us has a little velvet and a little edge. So it's so important to remember that to be strong, you must be soft too. Thank you so much for sharing in those stories with me. You can follow Velvet's Edge on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as velvetsedge.com. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me every Wednesday for more conversations on lifestyle, beauty, and relationships. Thanks for listening. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.